Okay, so we'll begin Lesson 8 this morning. It's hard to believe we're on Lesson 8 and we're still in Chapter 2 of our book dealing with the conscience. And we're finishing up a look at 30 scriptures from the New Testament that deal specifically with the conscience. We're getting down to the end here. I mentioned to you uh, earlier this morning that we... um, didn't quite finish. I was. I came up one verse short last week and trying to close out uh, some thoughts from First Timothy and Second Timothy. And, you know, there they were dealing with uh, people who had come into the church and were uh, teaching error, uh, taking advantage of an audience, so to speak, to pretty much teach like they had been brought up to teach, the way the Jews taught. They were telling stories and things that really didn't make a whole lot of sense, or as it says, it didn't, didn't support the gospel. Uh, you start easing that way, and what happens? Before long, you've got to change the gospel. Okay? And Paul left instructions for Timothy, uh, left him there at Ephesus to deal with these things. We looked at that, but there was one uh, verse just going in order throughout the New Testament Uh, from Titus chapter 1 verse 15 that I want to look at and then we'll get into the scriptures in in Hebrews and deal with those. Before I do that, I don't remember if I did this on tape or not, I said something last week about the scriptures in this book. I'm pretty sure I said they were NIV. Did I say that? They're not. They're ESV. I don't know why I said that. Uh, I, I had that in my mind. It's just too many letters, I guess. I don't know. But when I was studying this week, it dawned on me, you ever do that? I think, I told the class, I don't know why I said that. But anyway, they're not. And I knew that. In fact, I've got it marked. I always go to the front and mark it and highlight it. But anyway, I just make that correction. I'm sure you knew that. You can call me on it, okay? If I say something like that, you're not going to hurt my feelings, okay? Some of this stuff runs together after a while, even after you've looked at it for so long. ESV, yeah. Do what? You know, I um, you've probably noticed my my American Standard Bible is falling apart, and I've got it in the car. I've actually got a study Bible, so I have a MacArthur ESV study Bible, the, old, the hardback, <laughs> but I've got it up here. Just so you read, you read a, a verse that wasn't mine or my wife's, and I had Yeah, well, you know how it goes. He says, unless it says it's another verse, I may have hit on one of those verses somewhere that. That particular verse might have been out uh, in another translation, but uh, yeah. So I mean, I normally wouldn't stop. I might have it in my notes, but I wouldn't stop and, and say. So I'm sure that's what that was. So we look this morning at Titus chapter 1, verse 15, just for a little bit, where he says this. He says, To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Their minds and their consciences are defiled. Who is he talking about here? First off, who are the pure? And how is it that to the pure, this group of people who are described as pure, all things are pure? What's, what's the context? Or what's he talking about there? In verse 10, he's talking about the many rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. The pure. Pure believers, does that mean that everything that comes into a believer's mind is pure? No. no. What does it mean? It just means that we, are, we, are, we have been purified by the blood of Christ. Yeah. 
I like the example where we, we talk about direction versus perfection. In other words, because of the change that's occurred within us, because we do have the Holy Spirit of God living within us, it's not that we're not susceptible to sin or any of that. We know that. But our desire, our drive, if you will, our direction is a pure direction. And the closer we're walking with Christ, the more in tune our lives are with the Word of God, the clearer we can see that, the better we can evaluate our own direction. That's what he's talking about. And you see how this has everything to do with conscience. What what tweaks our conscience? So once again, we know if we're not following, if we're not pure... And I would add, by, by God's imputed grace, His imputed righteousness, if we're not there, we don't have the capacity. And we certainly know that the Bible supports that. That is to say, we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us and guiding us and directing us, and I trust filling us. Now, to feel obviously carries the, the connotation that it can be more filled or, or less filled, all right? And we want to focus on the fullness of God's presence in our life. In order to do that, we have to evaluate, do we not? We have to judge ourselves. We have to, as Paul would say in 2 Corinthians, examine ourselves. We have to do that. That's part of the process. It should be our joy to do that, right? Our joy. It's our joy to be corrected, if you will. It's our joy when the Holy Spirit impresses upon us for whatever reason, something probably previously unbeknown to us, but because of our desire to examine our hearts, which is our minds, our thoughts, our attitudes against the Word of God, now we see things more clearly. That's the work. That's the presence of the Holy Spirit. To the pure, he says, all things are pure. This is our direction. But to the defiled and unbelieving, so he kind of defines that for us, nothing is pure. Think about that. And that's how destitute it is for the unbeliever. So how does this affect us who are, according to this scripture, pure regarding our conscience? First off, it sets up a really, it sets a really bright light on these attitudes um, that can never, ever be in tune with God because there is no presence there within them. That's what he's talking about here. They do not have the Holy Spirit of God. Why is that important to us as believers? Because doesn't it it make you want to stop and think, man, am, am I really acting like that? Am I truly acting and thinking like an unbeliever? When truly I've been purified by the work of Christ on the cross and yet I either by subterfuge or my own will, God forbid, I'm involved in something and and hear me, it may even be just a thought, just an attitude that is so worldly, that is so sinful that it would be described as unpure. It would be described as defiled or unbelieving. Now, I'm not talking about living in some sort of legalistic way. I'm just talking about identifying sin and error when it comes into our life and calling it what it is. Calling it what it is. Not trying to cover it up. I think the point of this verse, though, is that the, the lost person, both their mind and their conscience are defiled, 
they don't have the capacity to label those thoughts as impure or defiled versus when our flesh rises up and we have those anger, lustful, prideful, whatever thoughts that we have, we can look at those and go, that is that is a flesh, that's Satan, that's sinful, and rebuke it and put it out of our mind. And the lost person cannot do that. And you're right on target because my next supporting verse takes us in, in support to Romans 1. But before we do that, the, this is similar to what he's talking about in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 4 2 when he talks about the seared conscience. Do you remember that? We looked at that verse, 1 Timothy 4 2, and we talked about how the conscience gets seared. Yeah. Look at um, Romans 1. Just briefly. And you're right, Chris. Romans 1, 28. And you know, beginning in verse 18 there, Paul goes through and, and talks about those who are uh, under God's wrath and who are described as unrighteous. And he says, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind. Is that what he's talking about, Chris? To a debased mind to, to do those things which are not fitting. And this is interesting if you look at this. There's three times there. What is it? 20, verse 24, 26, and 28. He talks about these people being given over, given up, given over. Okay? The, uh, the judgment, if you will, the wrath of God that's revealed uh, in, a, in a way that can only be described as abandonment. Okay, given over. Let, let them experience whatever their sinful hearts and attitudes desire. Because, and in context here, these people that he's talking about, they know the truth. They, they don't hurt from a lack of knowledge. It's not like they've never heard before. It says they know that. They just can't let go of their own sinful way. And he would say later, it's, they even have, you know, they get, they get joy out of people who do those same things. What you got, Chris? Right. speaks right of what Scripture says. It's out of the heart man speaks. But in this case, it's out of the mind our actions take place. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, what is it, debased mind. And I'm looking at the, the Greek word here, but it means unapproved or rejected or worthless. It means that which is reprobate or a castaway. And if you've ever heard MacArthur teach on this, he says that it's the word in different languages, moronic. And he goes on to talk about how because of their sinful actions, because they are so debased in their sinful conduct, so totally, so totally devoid of the Spirit that they can literally and practically no longer think rightly. They do not have the capacity. And he says the word is, is moronic. That's interesting to think about someone who could put off Christ put off the draw, if you will, the work of the Holy Spirit in their life, in their mind, okay, that of course which affects the way they think and their actions, to put it off so long that they're like set aside. Now, I don't, I don't, I don't know if he's talking about 
that you know they've they've crossed the line. They would never ever be able to change. Um, but I'll tell you this: that is a horrible place to be, and we can say that a horrible place to be. Yes. Yeah. Every single person is disobedient to their parent or haters of God. I mean, I guess everybody's haters of God. Scripture says that. But <laughs> not everybody fully expresses, expresses all of these sins to that degree. Um, it's quite a list, isn't it? But yeah. it's the general characteristics of all mankind. Yeah. I agree with that. Yeah. Um, when I think about Paul pulling all those words you know, out of his mind and heart, Obviously, it is the work of the Holy Spirit. That's why we have that today. So many times things aren't enumerated. They're talked about in a more general way. But here you've got all these specifics. It's absolutely overwhelming. The impact for us today as believers is simply this, when we're evaluating our conscience. It's that when we act in a sinful way, our our thoughts and our actions identify us with that kind of group. Okay? And then, to say nothing about what Christ died for, that He's, that he's covered all of that, it, it cost His own blood. I'm trying to, get us, uh, trying to get us some more motivation for examination. To look deeply into our own heart, into our own minds, our own conscience is what we're talking about. And make sure that our motivations are appropriate or else we run the risk of falling into any of these things there that are listed. And it doesn't matter if you do all of them, to do one of them. You know, to warm up to any of those would not be good. A debased mind. Yeah. Well, I wanted to go back and I wanted to make, uh, make that point. It would have been better, I, I guess, to have done it. We ran out of time last week. We had to finish up a little early. And uh, so I go back and we look at that this morning. So we can move on this morning, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. And uh, I guess for all practical purposes, we've, we've left Paul uh, if I say Paul, you call me on it, okay? <laughs> Regarding Hebrews. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, we'll refer to the writer of Hebrews. So, what we've done so far is we've looked at the importance and application of conscience regarding, you know, back in Corinthians, spiritually weak people and those who are more spiritually mature, they're, they're brothers and sisters in Christ, back from 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and Romans 14. Uh, we've looked at the same thing regarding false teachers and error in the church from First and Second Timothy. And so now we go to Hebrews to see the importance and application of conscience, uh, really regarding worship, the way we worship, the way we think about our worship, uh, seems to be kind of a guide word for us as I pull these scriptures together. So we've looked at these issues of conscience with different backgrounds, right? There's a different background, and we move to another one. Even in our, uh, when we were in, uh, you know, Timothy, we looked at its application regarding uh, deacons and elders and the application of conscience there in selecting deacons and elders, so forth. So here he's talking uh, from uh, Hebrews chapter 9, and 
we're going to look specifically at 9-9, but the more I read this and I saw how it involves so many different elements, uh, all, all of them that center around the conscience, I said, you know, unless we, unless we look at these first ten verses together, I don't really think it's going to, going to gel because he's going to talk about, uh, you know, the sacrifices, you know, that were made daily. He's going to talk about the sacrifice of atonement and so forth. And he's going to bring the conscience to bear on that. So we'll we'll look at that first. So let's look at chapter nine, Hebrews chapter nine. Uh, and I want to read. I want to read one through ten because he's talking about the first covenant, and then he's talking about the latter covenant. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread and the presence. And it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself, and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, Imposed until the time of redemption. So the context here is moving from one covenant, if you will, to another. And how, uh, how unable that, if you will, that first covenant was at satisfying the mercy and grace of God. It couldn't do it. It could not compete with that. And he says... It affects the conscience. It affects the way that we think about our worship and so forth. It cannot, as he says, satisfy the conscience. In verse uh, verse 7, he says, But into the second, only the high priest goes, and that but once a year, and he had to go in with blood, which he offers for himself, for, for the unintentional sins of the people." Have any of you ever looked at this passage very, very, very closely? Because I was unaware that on the Day of Atonement, on that day when he goes in, that the the, the primary thing that was to be accomplished there was just as it says there, for the unintentional sins of the people. Now, 
I don't know if you were like me, when you think about the Day of Atonement, okay, you think more in a, maybe in a broader scale. Everything I've ever done, everything I've ever thought and said, and I'm not saying it doesn't apply to that, but specifically he says it's to cover the unintentional sins of the people. I was never, I'll be honest with you, I was never really aware of that. The unintentional sins. So you go and you look at the specific words used, and he's talking about just simply errors that are made. This, this word, the word there is only used in Hebrews 9-7. It's not used anywhere else. Nowhere else. And it just speaks of ignorance. It, it designates, as it says, sins where an excuse is, and the word is interpolated, and it just means placed in there, put in there, added to our confession, if you will. It's those things that we go to God and say, God, you know, I know I did this, but I was thinking this. I didn't mean to. I wasn't aware. I didn't know all those kind of things. That's what he's talking about here. I never realized that. Is that not, I mean, you said that this particular word, unintentional, you said this is the only place that particular... That's what it says. Yeah, but, I mean, they do mention unintentional sin in the Old Testament. Well, you may find... Uh, you may find a word in some translation that's translated that way. Yeah, He's saying the Greek word agnoema, that's the only place it's used. The Greek word, yeah. I don't know, I'd have to dig it up for you <laughs> from the Old Testament. I'd have to look at it. But don't you find that? Don't you find that interesting? Okay. And the point here as it relates to conscience is this, is that even with a, with a clear understanding of the old covenant and participating in all that, even, even to what the priests were doing. You know, they did this every day. There were the daily sacrifices and so forth. But yet we know that the, you know, the common people, average people, they could only go in the outer part of the temple. And then you had a part of the priest that could go into the, the first area. And then as it described there, you had this second area that only the high priest could go into. And that only once a year, he said. And then he always took the blood. You had all of this going on to typify, if you will, to foreshadow the sacrifice that would come in Christ's death on the cross. It was always pointing toward something else. The point here as it relates to conscience is this. All of that, and to participate in all of that, even as Paul would share, not in these scriptures, but Paul would share that he counted all of that but lost all that he had ever done in that regard. Why? Because it did not satisfy his conscience. Think about that. Can't do it. Why? Because Christ's sacrificial death, His total payment, if you will, for our sin is the only thing that could satisfy. And He's, in, he's saying that even when all of this happened and the sacrifices were carried out and the atonement was sacrificially made, that it did not relieve the conscience. It didn't. How does that help us today? It helps us focus upon the truth about what God has done for us in His sacrifice, enabling us to have a clear conscience. So when you don't have a clear conscience over an individual, over over a situation, not necessarily an individual, but a situation, Think first off 
about the gift that we said when we started our study, this, this, this issue of conscience. Conscience is a tremendous gift to us. It allows us to evaluate. It allows us to respond to, to the guilt, true guilt, that's placed upon our lives to give us correction. Whom the Lord loves, He chastens and corrects and scourges every son who believes from Hebrews. He does that. What a gift. We have that. There's nothing better than being able to lay your head on your pillow at night and know, as Paul has said so many times, and as the writer of Hebrews will say, my conscience is clear. It's clear according to the Word of God, according to the work of the Spirit. And I know it's clear, and I know it can be clear because of the sacrifice that has been made for me. I am trusting in that. I want God to show me the error of my ways And I want Him to keep me close to Him. This is not to be, well, confused with, or the opposite of these unintentional sins would be what David refers to in Psalm 19.13 as presumptuous sins. Now that is a Hebrew word. You go back and look at that. And he's talking about those things which are, they come from a prideful heart. They're insolent. They're described as, as wicked or wanton sins, intentional sins. It's not what he's talking about there. I'm just glad to know that even the things that I might not be aware of or things that have transpired in my life, an attitude that I've accepted, that I've not dealt with, that might not represent God's best in my life or certainly something that has the potential to lead me to sin or a greater sin, those things can be exposed by the power and Word of God. All of that is because of the sacrifice of Christ, every bit of it. That's what it takes us back to. We talk about unity in the church on any level. The number one thing that brings people together in the church is what? I know the answer. What must our focus be if we are to be in unity over anything? Christ, first and foremost. And for the church, secondly, the body of Christ. What is the will of Christ? What is best for the body of Christ? What is our motivation there? And I've often give you a visual, a pyramid. People are down here, this one over here, this one over here. They can't seem to get together. But Christ and the church are up here. And the more they focus on Him, the the closer they get to Him, what happens in this pyramid? The closer they get to Him, the closer they get to one another. The closer they get to one another. If you evaluate your heart, if you evaluate your conscience, ask yourself first off, am I seeking the will of Christ? And as a servant in church, ask yourself, in whatever capacity you serve in, am I all about what's best for the body of Christ? Where is self in any of that? That's our battle. That is our battle. Christ has made it all possible. Made it all possible. So... You know, Hebrews uses this. He throws this word conscience in there, which is our focus today. That's great. Hebrews uses this. But to be able to go back and to look that even the, the old sacrificial system, 
as it was, did not satisfy. It couldn't. Could not. I'm so thankful for the age in which I live. I'm thankful for that. Hebrews 9.9, he says that it was symbolic for that present age. According to this arrangement, he says, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Hebrews 9.10, the verse that follows says, But deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. The time of reformation. You see that word there. It's not a reference to the historical <laughs> reformation. It's not. Maybe we would like to think, but that's not exactly what it is. It's a particular Greek word here that means straight or correct. It means to make right. There was a fulfillment. There was something that was reformed. Okay, And we're talking about the, the culmination, of course, of God's plan for salvation. We know that. A writer here says, under the old covenant, Israelites offered God gifts and sacrifices that couldn't completely clear the condemnation they felt from their moral conscience. Couldn't couldn't happen. The old covenant was limited. It was limited. It was not perfect. And it wasn't intended to be. It was temporary. And now the sacrifice of Christ has made it all possible. And in an absolute, complete Way It delivers. And what I mean by that, it will cleanse and clear the conscience. We all wrestle with conscience in some fashion. 11 and 13 I've marked to read. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, now he's talking about what, what eventually transpired, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption for us. That's what he's done. He has secured an eternal redemption. Redemption for us. The writer of Hebrews makes it clear. In the interest of time, it's five after. Let's, let's move on to Hebrews 9.14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Wow, we can get excited about this this morning. It's in place. It, it works, as I said. The blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself, and He did it, He says, He was the perfect Lamb, as it says so many times, spotless and without blemish. He satisfied the holiness, the righteousness of God, the expectation. It's done. That is what we rely upon. Now, I hope you're like me. It helps me to realize this when I think about how effective this whole process of me examining my conscience can be. It can, it can take me uh, to uh, a completed end, if you will. It can take me to a point where I'm totally satisfied in my mind and heart. This is what Paul would say time and time again when he talked about having a pure conscience, a clear conscience. 
And it interests me that it always goes back to the sacrifice of Christ making that possible. And he uses the word again here, purify. Um, you know, we look at, you know, pure, we said earlier, or last week, we said a pure heart was catharos cardia. Here's the word catharismos. And it just simply means to change or to purge. And he did it. He's without blemish. He's acceptable to God. No fault. Unblameable. No, no spot whatsoever. That's what he's provided for us. That's what the evaluation and the clearing, if you will, of our conscience is based upon. It's based upon the sacrifice of Christ, the work of Christ. The blood of Christ, our writer says, clears all the condemnation we feel from our moral consciousness. It cleanses our moral consciousness, which enables us to serve the living God. Those people that we read about earlier in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18 there, had disavowed. They had turned their back on their moral consciousness. They, they had a moral consciousness. God had placed that within them. And he says plainly there in those verses, if you want to go back, he says nature itself testifies them. The witness of nature is significant and sufficient to condemn us. Then there's enough moral consciousness and reasoning in every person to be drawn to that truth. Romans 1 says you have to turn your back on that. You have to choose to go the other way. That's what you have to do. And they had done that. And they continued to do that. And they disavowed even the witness of nature. He says plainly, you, those who do that are without excuse just because of the witness of nature. In conjunction with their own moral awareness, they have no excuse. They didn't do it. Hebrews 10.1 says, For since the law has but a shadow of good things to come, Instead of the true form of these realities, it can never be the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year. They cannot make, or they don't, they make perfect those who draw near. Hebrews 10.2, Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sin. He's going back and talking about the sacrifices that were made and their insufficient They're necessary. They're necessary to bring people to an awareness of sin in life. Why? Because it it, it would leave the people then, even after everything was accomplished, the conscience wasn't, wasn't quite clear, wasn't quite enough, didn't satisfy. That's amazing. I'm moving on to get through Hebrews 10 22. Hebrews 10.22. Now in that last verse, yeah, let me point this out. In Hebrews 10.2 that I just read, when he's talking about conscious there, consciousness, he, that's one of those, one of two times in all of these 30 verses where the word conscious there just means an awareness. That's what that means there. Uh, and there's another verse in Peter that we'll look at later on. So up to 22, he says, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So if we look at the, at the words that are translated draw near, 
It's the, it's the Greek word praxis, and you've heard that word if you work in the hospitals or whatever. You, you hear the word practice, and it's always talking about you know, that which is practice or clinicals or those kinds of things, right? Your praxis. And that's what it's talking about, where it comes from. But it's a, it's a practice of function or a deed, something done. Well, how does that relate to draw near? Where do they get that from? You follow? When the actual language talks about a practice, as I said, a function or something done, do you see the connection there? It's something that's worked out. It's just drawing near to God is not, is not just an attitude. See? From the original language, it's a word that says it's something that you move upon. It's something that's evident in your life. It's not just an ascent. It's not just a, a thought process. It's evident. Draw near to God. You might say change the way you're living. Okay? You might say look, look at His Word. Yield to His Spirit and then move. When I was praying for our class this morning, I talked about not just hearing but doing the Word of God. Even as James says, be doers of the Word and not hearers only. And the latter part of that verse is what? Deceiving your own selves. So when we talk about getting close to Him, we're talking about action. We're not just talking about uh, curling up and pleading. We're talking about doing something. Moving on our convictions. That's what He's talking about here. Praxis. So Hebrews 13, 18. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. Paul says, I'm sure about this. He says, in essence, I have an inward certainty. I said Paul. Y'all didn't correct me. Okay. Been in, been in Paul too much. The writer of Hebrews says that he has an inward certainty. He has a trust he has a, it's a self-agreement and assurance. He, he believes that. He knows that. This is where he is. How did he get there? How did he get there? Because our communion with Christ is effective now. Because we have a Savior. We have a Lord who intercedes for us. We have one who can bring His Word and His will to bear upon our life when we yield our Sells to him, and it'd be clear as a bell. Clear as a bell. We have that. And we get there by examining our conscience, by listening to the voice of God. I'm in no way talking about something mystical. I'm not. I'm talking about the power of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit in our life, which is a very real thing. And we took some time this morning to focus on the fact that that was part of what God purchased for us through Christ's sacrificial death. We can, in all of our error and all of our sin and all of our shortcomings, we can stand before Him clean. We can. Sometimes I think in my life, yeah, but only for a little while. <laughs> you know, and then there's something else. I guess it'll be that way until our salvation is realized and glorification, we know that to be true. Well, that's what he tells us though. He's sure of it. They're sure that they're living and acting according to the high standards of their moral conscience, which has been developed by the Word of God. 
their association with Him, seeking Him in prayer, being obedient to Him. And they're trying to live in a way that always honors Him, the writer and his entourage. And then I, I couldn't help, as I was looking at this, I, we, we just looked at 13, uh, 18. The verse before that, 17, really sets the context for that. And I thought about going over that verse first, and I said, no, I'm going to save it for last. So we're going back to the verse before, at verse 17, which you should be familiar with, Hebrews 13, 17, that says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give, who have to give, rather, an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And then you get the focal verse with conscience. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. So the writer of Hebrews appeals to his conscience and to the conscience of those who serve and minister to him. You know, in essence, he's saying what we know and what we've heard before. He's saying what our own pastor has said from the pulpit. And, and this is what the Word of God says. Look at our lives. That's what leadership here is saying. Look at our lives. We stand with a clear conscience. And I've said, let's pray together.